Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. This is Karen Wickiam, your host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Good morning, good evening, good night, everyone. Today is episode eight, and I will be telling the story of Howard Dully, a man who was lobotomized by Dr. Walter Freeman at the age of 12. His story is tragic, but awe-inspiring, and you're going to see why. I was happy to be done with the lobotomy series because Walter and all his insanity was really getting to me. But I'm not completely done with him yet because there are stories that still need to be told. And this gentleman... Howard Dully has gone through hell and back and has been an inspiration and a voice for all those that were victims of Dr. Lobotomy. Before I start today's show, I'd like to give out some shout outs. First of all, I want to shout out to everybody who listens to this podcast. Thank you so much. I continue to be, and I don't ever think I will stop being overwhelmed and appreciative and grateful for all you listeners taking your time to join in and listen to this podcast, as well as giving your feedback and support. So thank you so much. I have a few new iTunes reviews this week. Thank you to Bossy Pants 16 Anantal, and WA Podcast Junkie. Thank you so much. Any of you that are out there that enjoy the podcast or maybe have some suggestions on how I can improve, if you could please go to iTunes and give me a review, I would really, really appreciate that. So thank you. I mentioned last week that I have started a Patreon account and I got two Patreon supporters last week, and I have two new supporters this week. So I want to say thank you very much to Cambo from True Crime Island. He is absolutely amazing. He's got an incredible true crime podcast. He's from Australia, and he's cool as hell. Why don't we let him tell you a little bit about himself? Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. Thank you, Cambo. My other Patreon supporter is Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. It is another fantastic true crime podcast that you absolutely, absolutely have to listen to. So why don't we let Lainey tell you a little bit about herself? Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. 
It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. Thank you, Lainey. You are a rock star. So maybe you guys can go check out my Patreon page. It's under the name STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. I have my rewards listed there. I also have all my podcast episodes, and it tells you about what my goals are. Pretty much to just make the best podcast possible when it comes to sound, and to continue on giving the best content possible. Okay, it's time to start the podcast about someone who I admire greatly, Howard Dully. I remember arriving, I believe, in the family station wagon uh, with my father. Uh, I was checked into the hospital. Uh, I was only supposed to go in for tests. I had no clue about the lobotomy at all. She had to control me somehow, had to deal with me. I was an issue, I was a problem. She saw six doctors before she found Freeman. Uh, Four of the six said she was the problem, not me. The other two said I was just a normal kid. In fact, several times she visited Dr. Freeman without either me or my dad. In fact, the information I have, my dad was only consulted once. Uh, I probably was seen three times by Freeman. And Freeman was a very personable man. He was very easy to get along with. He could lull you into a sense of uh, security. Freeman recommended a front lobe lobotomy in order to change my behavior. I was 12 years old. So you've heard the words out of the mouth of the big man himself. And I do mean big man. He's six foot seven. He's a gigantic teddy bear. I struggled a bit trying to figure out how I was going to start this story, Howard's story. I felt it was important to talk about his grandparents and parents' history. Mental illness and abuse just doesn't appear out of the blue one day like black magic. It ebbs and flows and it goes from generation to generation. In order to fully understand Howard's story, I think I would be amiss not to talk about his family history as far back as his grandparents and his parents. Howard was born at Penalta Hospital in Oakland, California, November 30th, 1948, to his mother June Louise Pierce, who was 34, and his father Rodney Lloyd Dully, who was 23 at the time. Rodney's family came from Estonia. They were a family of lumberjacks and rail workers. His mother was from Ireland, and they both met in Oregon. Rodney's parents had three boys in total, that's including Rodney himself. His father died in 1929 when Rodney was only three years old. His mother, Beulah, was a young widow and struggled to take care of her three boys. She swore that she would never remarry again, and she didn't. She worked hard to support the three boys, but wasn't able to make ends meet. His father, Rodney, was sent to live with his aunt and uncle at the age of six, and he was shuffled from place to place after that. He lived in six different homes before he graduated from high school. At the age of 18, he joined the army. That was in 1943, and he fought in France. And when he returned home, his brother reported that he was never the same. From what I understand, he had PTSD-like symptoms. 
June Pierce was Howard's mother. Now, she was born into a wealthy family. Her parents were Daisy and Hubert Pierce, and there was three of them in total. June, Gordon, and Hugh. Now, Hubert Pierce dies when the children are young, and Daisy remarries another very wealthy man by the name of Dallas Patrician. They lived in a mansion in Oakland, California. June attended and graduated from university and got a degree in elementary education. She was a happy-go-lucky woman. She was tall and beautiful and moved through high society and was often in the high society pages. June had gone through many suitors because Daisy was very possessive of June and drove off all the men that she was dating. So June was pushing spinsterhood at the age of 33. In those times, that was quite old to be unmarried. June spent her summers working at a resort and Rodney worked at a logging camp close by. The resort and logging camp were in Oregon and that's where they met and dated and fell in love. Lots of love letters were sent back and forth and Rodney worked very hard in order to make enough money to ask June to marry him and give her the wedding a wealthy woman would expect. They married in December 28, 1947 and they moved to Medford. Now, at the time, Rodney was working and attending university, but in order to provide the lifestyle that June was accustomed to, he quit school and just worked even harder at the lumber camps. Shortly after, she got pregnant with Howard, and she moved back home with her mother in Oakland, California, and she moved back home each time she became pregnant, and she would stay through her whole pregnancy. While June was away, Rodney took sick at work and was unable to work again at the lumber camps because he suffered some kind of health condition that stopped him from doing so. And he couldn't find work, so he ended up having to move into June's mother's mansion, and the tension was very high. June carried Howard to full term, and he was born a very healthy 9-pound, 24-inch baby. That's right. It's a big boy. Um, his mother was six feet and his father was six foot three. So that wasn't uh, out of the question or unusual. Howard was a happy and cheerful baby, very friendly, and June doted on him. After Howard was born, Rodney moved his little family to a small one-bedroom, low-income apartment near San Jose State University and got work as a lumber salesman and resumed his studies at the university. In August 1951, Howard's brother Brian was born, and he was a healthy big baby as well. The thing was that June continued to dote on Howard, and it was like Brian wasn't born. Rodney took over the care of Brian, and this was one of the things that Rodney had told Howard later in life. I was the one taking care of Brian. All she cared about was little Howard. Howard was the most important person in his mother's life, more important than me. I could have dropped dead and it wouldn't have made a little bit of difference because she had you. I can just hear the resentment and sarcasm dripping in that quote. I wonder how exaggerated it was as well. You think that Rod would have been happy to have two healthy children, but you know what? If it was true and she really just paid attention to Howard and not Brian, you know, that was a little strange, but that's sort of how things were. When Rob completed his degree in university, he was hired as an elementary school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in a little town called Pollock Pines. Most of Howard's younger childhood memories came from the time when they lived there. 
He had a little cocker spaniel named Blackie and would spend vacations at June's family's lodge. It was a huge lodge in the country and it wasn't far from where they lived. Now, Howard remembers having first signs of anxiety at that age, not just regular anxiety, but showing signs of the type of anxiety he would have in the upcoming years. He remembers getting stuck in a snowbank and feeling so scared that he was going to be eaten by monsters and remembers his father laughing at him. Now, this may sound like normal childhood fears, but you will see soon that it was the beginning of heightened anxiety that he would have throughout his childhood and life. June loved being a mother and she was a natural. She enjoyed life, she was carefree and loved to have fun, and she was very indulgent and loving and affectionate mother. Rod, on the other hand, was restless, serious, and ambitious. He moved from the one-room schoolhouse and took another better-paying job at a bigger school. At the same time, he was working packing fruit at Dole. They had to move into his brother's house for a little while because they couldn't afford a place of their own just yet. And his brother's place was close to the school and the factory. And that lasted until June got pregnant for the third time. She moved back to her mother's home again. And Howard and Brian stayed with Rod and his family. Tragedy struck. June gave birth to her third son, that they named Bruce, who was severely brain damaged. He was reported to have only half a brain and wasn't expected to live. June grew gravely ill after the surgery. She had been suffering from abdominal pain throughout her pregnancy and had seen her doctor many times, and he said it was just pregnancy pains. And he was as wrong as he was negligent. June had colon cancer that went undiagnosed. She had a large mass in the colon that perforated or burst inside and caused a massive infection in her abdominal cavity called peritonitis. And she died 11 days later after giving birth to Bruce from septic shock. She never likely got to meet and hug and kiss her new son. And she never got to say goodbye to Howard and Brian. Rodney didn't even find out that June was dying until hours before her death. June's family did not call Rodney. He went to the hospital to see his wife, and it was when he got there he found out that she was in grave condition. He had to fight to see her. Daisy and June's brother Gord told the hospital staff that Rodney and June were separated and that he was no longer part of the family. He had to convince the doctors that, he, that it wasn't true. Finally, they let him see her, and she was in a coma and died that night at the age of 39. An interesting thing did happen beforehand, though. June had changed Howard's name from Howard August Dully to Howard August Pierce Dully behind Rodney's back. And he didn't find out until after her death, and he was furious. And it makes me think that maybe June was thinking of leaving Rodney and wanted to ensure security for her son by giving him her family name. This was the beginning of a very tumultuous and ugly relationship between Rodney and his in-laws. It was also the beginning of a horrendous change in Howard's life that would lead to much tragedy and suffering. After June's death, his grandmother Daisy and his uncle Gordon tried to gain custody of Howard and Brian. Daisy filled out papers to have them adopted by Gordon to raise him as his own. And this is a quote that Gordon wrote discussing how he felt about Rodney. He was a lousy father and that June should never have married him. If I had a gun, I would have shot him. Howard, meanwhile, had no idea what was going on. He was missing his mother terribly. She had gone away to have a baby, and she never came back home. He didn't know what happened to his baby brother or to his mom. His loving, attentive mother had gone away and not come back. 
Can you imagine how confused this little guy was? I'm going to read an excerpt written by Howard, this time from his book called My Lobotomy. Rodney broke the news to Howard one night when they were driving in a car, and this is what he told him. He told me my mother had gone away and she was never coming back. I wasn't ever going to see her again. I was four years old and I had gotten very, very upset. I threw a tantrum. I screamed and yelled. I needed to see my mother. I cried my eyes out and demanded that I see my mother. It might have been better if they just had told me that she was dead and I would have understand maybe what was going on. As it was, I was afraid she had left. I was afraid that she didn't want me. I was afraid that she didn't love me. What other explanation could there be? Why else would your mother leave you and never come back again, except that she didn't love you? This was too painful for me, so I decided that she was there and that she was nearby smiling down on me. Uh, it's, just, it's so sad. It's heartbreaking. I try to understand the times, the 1950s when men were supposed to be macho and in charge and unemotional. You didn't talk to your kids about death and dying, and men generally didn't raise their children on their own. Now, I know not all men were like this, but it was the times. There was a mentality of spare the rod and spoil the child, and I try to understand it. I really do. It's hard for me because human kindness isn't something that was just invented. I've tried to be empathetic towards Rodney, but a bigger part of me is very angry at how his children were being treated, especially when there were grandparents that could have helped. They could have tossed away their dispute and maybe rallied around and helped the kids, but no. It was a really hard time for Howard, obviously. And it was a hard time for Rodney. I mean, he was only 27 years old and he had three young sons, one of which was severely disabled and might not live. How was he going to care for them all? He was estranged from his wealthy in-laws who conspired against him, and he was living with his brother and family of five in a very tight quarters. Rodney couldn't afford a place of his own yet. So Rod, Howard, and Brian could no longer live at his brother's house, and Rod's mother, Beulah, helped them out by renting a small two-bedroom apartment for them all. Howard and Brian in one room, Beulah and Rod in another, separated by a curtain. They lived in San Jose, which then was a small working class town in the 1950s and 60s. And close by was Los Altos, which was about 10 miles away from where they lived. And it was a place of wealth. It's where the rich lived. Grandma Beulah was also known as Grandma Boo. She was a short, tough, cosmopolitan and stylish redhead. She was strict, not affectionate, but she did love her family. Howard started kindergarten at the time, and he was really afraid that he would get hurt or lost on the way from home or not be able to find his way home. He was afraid that there were crocodiles under his bed at night and afraid to take the bus to school. He had terrible nightmares where a rope with a noose was trying to pull him into a car. Again, this may sound like just regular childhood fears, but his were just that much more. Howard was a smart and mechanical little boy. He could take apart a radio and put it back together at the age of five. During this time when they had moved to the little house with Grandma Boo from the school that Rod worked at, 
and Howard attended found out about their situation, about June dying. And they jumped in and helped out to try to make sure they had everything they needed. They helped out with sewing and laundry and meals and babysitting. One of the women that helped was named Lucille. And she insinuated herself into their lives. And after a period of a year and a half, Rod and Lucille got married. Howard's life would never be the same. Now I'm going to talk about Lou. One thing that you're going to pick up on right away is how much I dislike Lou. You'll eventually hear how much I hate her, how much she disgusts me, and I'm just giving some fair warning. Before I jump right in and start raving about her, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. It's only fair. Her full name was Shirley Lucille Harden, and she was the exact opposite of her mother. She was short and plain and mannish. She wore her hair short and didn't wear makeup. She wore jeans or pants and check shirts, and she rarely, rarely wore dresses, which is unusual for the times. And she presented more as masculine than feminine. She smoked non-filtered cigarettes, and she was stern. I went into great detail about her because I really want you to have a good picture of what this woman looked like and was like. How she presented herself. I will be posting some pictures of her for you guys to take a look at. Here's a little background about her. Lou had an unstable childhood. She was born in 1919 to a teenage mother who was a real 1920s flapper party girl. In other words, she was a bit of a hoochie mama. Lou's father was not in the picture when she was born and he took off. Lou's mother, Shirley Jackson was her name, didn't want to raise her either and left her to be raised with her mother, Lou's grandmother, who was a widow. Lou's mom went on to marry four times and had another daughter from one of the marriages. And Lou's father married a woman named Nana. Yeah, her first name was Ba and her last name was Nana. No, just her name was Nana. Eventually they all moved back into the area and hung out together. It's just a fun little family. So needless to say, Lou had a difficult childhood with no real parental role models. She married young after she graduated from high school and she married a runaway from Alabama and his name was, are you ready for it? Red Cox. <laughs> Very unfortunate name. She married Red when her mother was getting married to her fourth husband. So they became close because they were both kind of getting married at the same time. Yeah, tangled web. Lou had two sons with Red by the name of Cleon and George, and she was not a natural mother at all. Her niece had spent a lot of time around Lou for a period of time and witnessed her crappy mothering. She would leave George in his bassinet for hours at a time while he was crying from hunger, and she had to be told to feed him. If he was hungry in between feedings, she would just not feed him. Lou divorced Red later on, but continued to live with him in the house in Los Altos. It was then that she met Rodney and started helping out with him and Howard and Brian. Now, I find this very strange because she didn't like being a mother, but I think she had her eyes set on Rodney and wanted to be with him. So, like I said earlier, within a year and a half, they were married, and I think this was more likely a marriage of convenience for Rodney. Howard was seven years old at the time, and the year was 1955. 
They moved into her cramped two-bedroom house, where the four boys slept in one room with a set of bunk beds and Lou and Rod in the other, and that room was strictly off-limits to the boys. If you had a nightmare, too bad. Howard remembers early times there as being fun. George, Lou's son, and Howard were close in age and spent a lot of time playing together. Early on in those days, they had family barbecues and his dad would scrounge up some lumber and build them really cool things. And one year, he even built them a swimming pool. At the time, Los Altos was the Beverly Hills of San Jose area. It was a place where lawyers, bankers, businessmen, and doctors like Walter Freeman lived. That's right. In order to live in that area, his father had to work many jobs. His father worked five jobs. He was rarely home. And when he was, he was unavailable. He was either sleeping, watching TV, or reading. Just for the hell of it, I'm going to tell you what he did. He worked at the elementary school during school hours. He was a crossing card before and after school. He worked Saturday and Sundays as a checker at a market. And then he worked at Eastman Kodak for a 6 to 12 shift. Then he worked at the National Guard every other weekend while studying part-time at Stanford University. He always was a hard worker. His brother said he always had a job and did well in school. But I think there was something more going on there. He really, in my mind, just never wanted to be home. I think I can figure out why. So this was not a good thing for Howard because he was stuck by himself. Well, not by himself. But basically, Lou ran the household. And Lou hated Howard right from the beginning. She had no reason to, but she did. And she had no qualms in showing it. Lou, to say it mildly, was a sociopath. She was militant. She kept the house not just clean, but obsessively clean. She crossed the line from being strict to abusive pretty quickly with Howard. She was obsessed with cleanliness, especially when it came to personal hygiene. Here's a quote from Howard about some of the things that were going on at the time. She started wiping my butt. She made me take down my pants and my underpants and bend me over. If she didn't like what she saw, she would get a washcloth and wipe me while complaining how dirty I was. I didn't need anyone to wipe my butt. It was traumatic for me. It was humiliating to have someone make me bend over and take my pants down, and I hated it. Can you imagine? Like, what the hell is wrong with this woman? That is just twisted. That is crossing the line. (sighs) He was seven. Another thing that was a big no-no in the house was being hungry. As per Howard, Lou was a great cook, and he loved her meals. He was a big kid. He was growing and he needed to eat to keep him healthy. And she would always admonish him for wanting seconds. And she called him a pig for being hungry all the time. As Howard said, meals were for mealtimes. If there were no snacks, you were hungry in between meals. Too bad. You just have to wait. But Howard was so hungry all the time, he couldn't wait. He would sneak fruit. And when he got caught, he got punished. That's right. He would get spanked for eating a banana. So Howard was starting to get in trouble during that time. I mean, his life was turned upside down and, you know, he was a regular, healthy, growing kid with a lot of energy. 
He probably would have been diagnosed maybe with ADHD at the time. In Howard's words, he said, To be honest, I deserve some kind of punishment. I'd get restless or bored and I'd start to misbehave. He would go on to say that he liked scaring people. He would hide and jump out and scream at them, and he would just like the reaction they got. And if his brother was building, you know, blocks, he would kick it over afterwards. He got spanked a lot. With Lou, it was a bare butt spoon to his bum. With his father, it was much worse. Lou would talk to his father as soon as he got through the door and tell on Howard when he got home. It was usually an exaggeration or a lie. And she would make things up. She would blame him for what the other kids had done. And Howard was never asked if it was true or not. His father would make Howard pick out a piece of wood to be hit with. Now, I can't imagine having to pick out your own weapon to be beaten with. And Howard remembers some weeks when he was punished every day, either by Lou or his father. To Howard, the spankings weren't the worst thing. Either was taking away a ball or a toy, even his new bike. It was having to be isolated from the rest of the family, and that happened a lot. He would hear the kids out in the living room watching TV and having fun, and he would just be by himself in the bedroom. And Howard loved TV. I mean, every kid did at the time. Help, adults did. It was, it was a really new, exciting thing. And his favorite, favorite, favorite show was Disneyland. It was the one show during the week that he would look forward to. He would look so forward to it that he would, like, daydream about it. So if the boys were really good, they'd get to watch Disneyland. And if they were amazing, they'd get to have a chocolate bar. So for Howard, this was pure heaven. But this rarely happened. Lou would take that away from him to hurt him the most for practically doing nothing. And he would become withdrawn and he would cry. I mean, this really hurt him. He just wanted Lou to love him, but she treated him so badly, so differently from the other boys. And he craved to be hugged and spoken to with kind words. And the only touch he did get was hurtful and painful, mostly from being punished and spanking. The family was afraid of Lou's temper. She would get hysterical and scream. There was a double standard when it came to Howard. The rules simply didn't seem to apply to the other boys. They were never punished when the rules were broken. Say Howard came home late from school, and that was a big offense in Lou's eyes. He would immediately get punished. George would wander in after him. Nothing would happen. So Howard started to get into trouble at school. He didn't like to follow the rules. He did well in his subjects that interest him, but he did poorly in the ones that didn't. He was a bright boy who would get bored easily, and he wasn't sinister. He was great at games like cards and chess and, and checkers, but no one wanted to play with him because he just kept beating them. So there you go. He loved to have fun and have fun things, but the things that he was good at, no one would play with him. He was constantly sent to his room. He was kind, constantly isolated. He was constantly punished. You know, he how was he able to learn and develop social skills? He was just centered out and abused. And Lou would get really violent with him. She would scream at him. One time Rodney came home and heard Lou beating Howard so violently, it scared his father. He ran into the room, not knowing what he was going to find. He saw that Lou had pinned Howard on the ground with his arm behind his back, really smushing it up. Again, he's just a little kid. And here is a, a perfect example of Lou's vindictiveness and spitefulness. 
and Howard just trying to figure out ways to survive. One time, Lou beat him over the head with the metal end of an electric lux, Electrolux vacuum cleaner. You know how big those mothers were then. So this is what he said. She hit him over the head. I flinched. She said, oh, did that hurt? I wouldn't admit that anything hurt. So she hit me again, but harder this time. And I flinched again. And she said, how about that? Did that hurt? And I said, no. And she hit me again real hard this time. I felt dizzy. And she said, how about that? Did that hurt? I didn't answer. I figured if I said no again, she'd hit me again. And I thought she was going to knock me out. It was about a year later that Lou hit Howard for the last time. For whatever reason, Lou decided she was mad at him and attempted to punish him. This time he didn't care. He wasn't afraid. He had gotten very big and strong and she just looked small and weak to him. And he started to laugh because it didn't hurt. He found it funny. And when she stopped, he stopped laughing and just glared at her. He had stood up to her for the first time. Like I said, he wasn't violent, but God, he must have been sick of getting beaten. And he was big enough at that time that it just was ineffective. Well, how could it ever be effective? After that, it was only his father that would punish him. But Lou had to find another way to keep him in line. In the summer of 1957, when Howard was nine years old, the family moved into a beautiful seven-bedroom mansion that coincidentally was also owned by the Winchester rifle gun family. So they're also the ones that had built the Winchester mystery house. Just a little bit of uh, trivia there. But it can give you an idea of the type of home they lived in. In reflection, Howard looks back and wonders how they could even afford a mansion a place like this. But I think it had a lot to do with the fact that Lou owned her own house that they were living in. And this would really hurt the pride of Rodney, who, being the man of the house, was kind of under the thumb of Lou. So that set up an interesting or a, a problematic dynamic in the family. So for Howard, this was kind of an exciting time. It was a big, beautiful house. There was tons of room to play in. He had his own bedroom for the first time and his own privacy. But in a sense, he was so used to living around a lot of people that it brought a lot of anxiety for him too because, you know, a big old house makes a lot of noises and can be scary at night. Moving into this great big house started a whole new level of obsessions with Lou. They had to look the part, they had to act the part, so the kids had to dress differently. Their dinner manners had to change to the extreme. She started buying really expensive furniture for the house, and if the most of the house was not off limits before, it was really off limits now. So she created an environment that wasn't really comfortable to live in and just difficult to be in. And of course, mostly this was directed towards Howard. The year that they moved in, there were also some other big changes. The older brother Cleon had moved out and his new youngest baby brother, Kurt, was born course, he being the child of Lou and Rodney. The dinner rules became even more strict. Now, this might seem like a small thing, 
in a sense, but nothing was small when it came to Lou and behaviors and control and obsessions. Because there was now to be no talking at the dinner table. Spoke only when you are spoken to. But Howard was absolutely targeted. He was mostly segregated from the family and forced to eat either in the kitchen or his bedroom or somewhere away from the family. So they'd all be eating together as a family and he would be in another room by himself or she would feed him before. She continued on with the name calling, calling him a pig, calling him disgusting, all those types of things. He was isolated in his room more and more. We continue to hear his brothers playing, having fun, watching TV, and he was just becoming more isolated. If you can imagine, now he's in a new school, a new big house, a new big neighborhood. His father's rarely home. Lou is really stepping up the abusive behavior, and there's a new baby. An older brother's moved out, and he really can't have any socialization with his current brothers in the house at all. Lou really stepped up the cruelty on his brother Brian's eighth birthday. They had arranged for something quite extravagant. They had ponies and lots of games and nice food and treats. And Howard was incredibly excited about it and went to join in and touch the ponies and stuff like that. Lou screamed at him, sent him to his room and said, you're not invited to this party. So go away. Can you imagine who isn't invited to their brother's party? How could she do that? And, you know, the kids, how do they react to that? I'm sure that made them feel sad, but they couldn't do anything. So she was just awful and obviously didn't care about what other people thought about it. People were afraid of this woman, this coward, this bully. Here's a quote from Howard around this time, and he's bang on. Maybe the part of why I behaved badly was because I was being treated like a bad boy, so I acted like a bad boy. Makes complete sense to me. Furthermore, the weird thing is I don't remember anyone ever sitting down asking me what was going on. I got yelled at. I got called names. Lou called me moron or idiot. My dad would say, don't be stupid or stop acting like a jerk. I got threatened. I got punished. But no one ever talked to me. No one ever asked me what was going on. So as the abuse worsened at home, so did Howard's acting out. Of course he's going to be acting out. He's going to have attention-seeking behaviors, or he's going to look for some kind of a pleasure or enjoyment outside the home because he wasn't getting any of that. The school pretty much gave up on him. He would behave poorly in class, and they would segregate him out instead of trying to help him. His relationship with his father wasn't great. His father would either be yelling at him or being unavailable or would use him for heavy physical labor around the house. One year he wanted to pave their very long and curvy driveway and who did he get to help? Howard. Howard was out there sweating it out under the hot sun like he was a grown man. Rodney would often send Howard out by himself to chop wood. One time him and his dad were chopping wood together and this is what happened. Quote, another time I remember we were cutting wood together. 
He was using a sledgehammer and a metal wedge split a log. Suddenly, a big chunk of metal wedge broke off and hit me in the shoulder. I felt like I had been shot by a bullet, and I looked like I had been stabbed. It hurt a lot, and it bled a lot. But I remember him saying, Stop crying, you baby. It's nothing. It's a really nice way to comfort a child. Who knows the physical damage that he could have done. During this time, him and George started growing apart. And and that's what happens around their age. They start to have their own interests and, and things. But also, I'll keep going back to socialization with Howard. He was living in his own little world, kind of. Full of anxiety, full of fear, full of hurt, full of sadness. And George was going on and being able to act like a normal boy. There were times where kids at school would try to pick on him or fight him. Now, this happened very rarely because he was such a big kid. But I'm pointing this out because it just goes to show or it gives an idea of Howard's constitution. He hated fighting. He didn't look for fights. And when kids came at him, he would do the best he could to de-escalate it instead of lashing out. And there was this one time where he was wrestling with the kid and it he got a little physical with him and did a wrestling move where he threw the kid down and he could have been really hurt. And Howard says it still bothers him to this day. Lou continued to insult and verbally abuse Howard every chance she got. And she would do it in front of his dad, which I think created even more of a power struggle. She would say, you make me sick. You eat like a pig. Let me go get you a trough. You eat like an animal. I'm going to get you a shovel. It's easy to hear a perception coming from one person or another. And our own perceptions, of course, are very unique to ourselves and how we feel them and see them. It depends on how we've been treated and how we feel based on that. But this is a report or this is a, an explanation or discussion from George himself. And I'm going to read a quote. George remembers her being neurotic about cleanliness, too. Also remembers her inspecting my underwear. If she found anything in there, any stains, I got a beating. George remembers Lou screaming her head off, dragging me upstairs by one arm, on the way to giving me a beating. I got lots of beatings. Mum would start and Pop would finish when he came home. George said, You had bruises all over your body almost every day of your life. You had marks all over you. I know they were hurting you, and I know it was wrong, he had told Howard later. And I know if it happened today, someone would be going to jail. When it's pretty clear to a young boy what was going on with his brother, I think it would be pretty clear to adults as well. Somehow, Howard was the target and he had no one to protect or back him. As I previously mentioned, Howard was starting to show signs of attention-seeking behavior or like he's gonna find pleasure where he can get it type of behavior. So he started to steal. He would steal little things like yo-yos and candies from the store. And Rodney started taking him to work with him, the six to 12 shift and have him stay in the car because Lou didn't want him around and he was trying to keep Howard out of trouble, but taking a kid to a six to 12 shift and having him sit in the car the whole time when he should be sleeping before going to school, but just making him sit in a car for six hours 
just, oh man, it, it makes me crazy. So he would sit in the car, he would do his homework, and he would delve into his own imagination. But as you can imagine, he would start to get bored. So he would go out and wander the parking lot, that's safe, and look into cars. And he started to steal things from the inside of cars. He would play with them. And Rodney one time came back to the car and discovered that he had stolen things. And of course, he got punished and admonished for that. Howard graduated from grade school in 1960 and was being moved to Covington Junior High. He started smoking at this time. He was 11. He was starting to like girls and he would dream about getting married and having a wife and just having a beautiful, cozy, safe home to live in. So Howard was turning inward to find a place of safety and security and happiness while acting out to get some attention maybe and find some pleasure in life. With this escalating as it would, as it does with a abused and alienated and neglected child, Lou just stepped up her control, her sickness, and was deciding what to do with Howard. She spent the fall visiting with doctors, talking about Howard and what to do about him. Lou was conspiring to try to get him out of the house, to try to find a way to rid herself of him. She was determined to find out what it was and how to fix it. Here's a quote from Howard. If you ask me, I was a kid. I was doing pretty much what kids do at that age. Lou was determined to make me act right. She started talking with doctors and taking me to see doctors. She had been looking and talking to psychiatrists and psychologists. She started taking him when he was around seven years old. So she started pretty much when she entered the picture. And the doctors didn't see anything wrong with Howard. Nothing that matched what she was saying about him. So she would just move on to another doctor. She met with six psychiatrists in the spring summer of 1960. Four of the six of them even said that the problem in the house was with her. They said she was the one who would benefit from the treatment. Lou, of course, would snap at that and say, can you believe those doctors? She kept looking and looking and looking for a doctor that would agree with her. And this is when she was referred to Dr. Walter Freeman. This was the beginning of a sick partnership, the perfect storm, the ultimate betrayal and abuse to Howard, the sad and abused little boy who was doing nothing more than just being a kid. Lou was a compulsive liar. She went in guns a-blazing with her first meeting with Freeman. She wanted to set the tone that this child was completely, completely demented. If you ask me, it takes a very demented mind to come up with the things that she did. She said the first time that she saw Howard, he was a spastic. He had an awkward way of swinging his arms and had a peculiar gait. That he had poor muscle control. He didn't like working with his hands or building things and he didn't want to go to bed. He pounds and beats on his brother Brian. Total lie. Steals food and throws trash out the window. Yeah, because you didn't feed him, Lou. Uses toys as weapons. Crap. 
teases and punishes the dog, exaggeration. Scowls and frowns at the TV and only likes shows with blood and thunder. Yeah, that sounds like a regular, normal boy to me. He daydreams? <laughs> okay. And he's defiant. Who isn't defiant as a kid? So Freeman called this indictment sufficiently impressive. Sufficiently impressive for what? Being a regular kid? That could be a pain in the butt sometimes? Further, careless about how he dresses. Yeah, okay, so what? Turns lights on during the day. That's awful. Hates to wash. Oh man, he's a messed up kid, all right. Has nosebleeds. Well, that is definitely a sign of mental illness. I guess you're picking up on my sarcasm. <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm not meaning to laugh out of disrespect. I'm, I'm, I don't know what, how else to react other than laugh or cry. This, to me, is one of the most demented and twisted things that Lou said about Howard. It was a complete lie. Like I said, it takes a demented and twisted and sick and spiteful mind to come up with the things that she came up with. And this is what she said. He still sometimes defecates in his pants or in the bed or on the floor or may wrap up a turd and hide it in the drawer. Recently, he urinated on the walls of his room. Another time, he dribbled all the way from his room to the bathroom. Used toilet paper can be found in his closet, in his bed, or the tub. Really. I don't believe that shite for a second. So it's at this point that Freeman's recommendation is to send him out of the house. So they send him to stay with a family friend called Mr. Orville Black. And Freeman, without even meeting Howard, says that he is schizophrenic. Howard is doubting himself. And here's a quote from him. Could any of it be true? I'm sure I didn't wash well enough to satisfy Lou. I might have stained my underpants or dribbled on the way to the toilet. I'm sure I blew my nose and dropped the tissue on the floor. But wrapping up a turd and hiding it? Come on. Yeah, I'm with you there, Howard. His father, Rodney, even though he was a complete jackass to him, did get into a huge screen match with Lou saying that he was not as bad as she said he is. So you've got two mentally ill, demented, psychopathic people, Lou and Freeman, hell-bent on lobotomizing Howard, drooling to lobotomize a child with full permission from the psychopathic stepmother who hated Howard, who was bound and determined to destroy him and rid her of himself. Could there be a better partnership? I'm going to end this episode now because there was a lot more to talk about. And I don't want to rush this. Howard's story is near and dear to me because my heart aches for this little boy. And I just want to jump into that situation and save him and do some equally, if not worse, things to Lou and to the people around him that allowed that let this happen, that encouraged it by not doing anything or just ignored it, like his father. 
I really want to do a good job on this podcast so everybody gets a feeling and gets to know Howard a little bit by what he had gone through and the man that he became. So please stick in and listen. There's a lot more to talk about, a lot more to think about and share. Next episode, we'll talk about Howard's lobotomy and the fallout from that afterwards, how it affected his life. Thank you for listening in today. But we're not done yet. Remember, it's time for the Suture Room. Come on in. You know what to do. Come lie down on the comfy stretcher. I've got this room set up for you every time, and I keep gathering more and more comfy ways for you to enjoy these stories. I even got an extra package of cheese and crackers. So put your feet up, settle in to the bed, cuddle up with the blankie and the pillow, and have a listen to a wild and wacky and weird and true story that happened to me while I was working in the Emerge. Here we go. The title of today's suture room is called Chocolate, Coffee, and Staples. I worked many years as an ER nurse in a pediatric hospital, and I decided to move out of the city to buy a house in the burbs. Unfortunately, that meant that I had to resign from that hospital that I love to work at to a hospital closer to the home that I purchased. I hadn't worked with adult clients in a long time, and it was quite the transition. One of the biggest eye-openers came within a week of me working there. I was working in ambulatory care. It's a high volume area where the injuries and the illnesses are usually minor. The police had brought in a man who had been jumped. The man was intoxicated. He had just received his monthly government check. He was very excited to go out and buy his four favorite things. Two liters of whiskey, a big can of coffee, an extra large chocolate bar, and a carton of cigarettes. On his way home from shopping, He was jumped by a couple of thugs. He fought a long, hard battle. They got his whiskey and his cigarettes and his money, and he got a beating. He told me he had to decide what he had to fight for the most. And he said there was no question in his mind. No one was going to take his chocolate and his coffee. We arrived at the hospital with a large can of coffee that had a big dent in the side and a partially eaten chocolate bar. Now the chocolate had melted all over his face and his hands and his clothes and he had coffee grounds all over his face and hands and clothes it was all stuck together so when i was cleansing his wounds and helping him wash up i asked him how he got chocolate and coffee grounds all over him and he said that he wanted some chocolate and needed a coffee and since he couldn't brew the coffee the next best thing was to eat it he was a nice man he wouldn't hurt a soul He was an alcoholic with a history of mental illness, and it was sort of a sad situation, but because really he just wanted his simple things in life, and he wasn't hurting anybody, and no one deserves to be beaten up, for God's sakes. So he had pretty minor injuries. We did a CT scan just to make sure that he didn't have uh, any head injury or any, any bleed going on, and he didn't, but he did need to have some staples at the top of his head because he had about a four inch gash in his head. 
So the ER doctor came in to assess him. And this doctor, you got to picture him. He was really tall, about 6'7", muscular, handsome, with a strong, booming, and loud, and a, a very abrupt voice. He was quite the figure. He examined the client and looked at his wounds and asked me to get the skin staple gun. The staples hold better on things like scalp wounds. Sutures don't do as well on certain types of wounds like scalp wounds as staples do. So I went and got the staple gun and tray that we used to cleanse the wound before closing it. And I loaded a syringe with lidocaine, which is used to freeze the area so you don't feel it. And it's also good as a painkiller because it works for a few hours after the fact. Brought everything over to the bedside, had it all set up nicely for the doctor, and I went to pass him his sterile gloves so that he could put them on without contaminating anything. And he promptly reaches past me and grabs the pre-opened staple gun. And before I and the patient know it, you hear six staples in rapid succession that sounded like an air gun are stapled into this guy's head to close the wound. I was shocked. And the patient didn't even know what hit him. He grabbed his head and yelled, what the fuck? And I just stood there staring at the doctor as he grabs a chart, scribbles, and says to me, send him home. It was at this moment I realized I was initiated into the crazy world of emergency medicine in a general trauma center hospital in the bad part of town. What had I gotten myself into? So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the suture room. Before we end today's show, I'd like to give you my social media information so that you can contact me. I would love to hear from you for whatever reason, to tell me if I'm doing a good job, tell me where I can improve, or ask some questions or get some more information about some of the subjects I've talked about. And it's just nice to to contact, to be in contact with uh, everybody out there. So my Twitter is stat underscore tales. I have a Facebook discussion group, and you can find that at STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments group. It's an amazing bunch of people there, and we have a lot of fun talking about assortment of things. And if you don't mind buzzing over to iTunes and giving me a review, I'd really appreciate it. It helps get this podcast out there, make it easier for people to find. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And remember, sometimes it's the cure that kills you. <laughs>